Hi, it's Maria here and welcome to episode 12 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their life and art. My guest today is Juliet Holmes Accord. Juliet's work is all about capturing the sense or feeling of a thing or a place. Her works are filled with light and movement and when you see her paintings, it just takes you to another place. She's had 12 solo shows and been included in many more group shows. She's received numerous art prizes and been finalist in many others, including eight times in the Portuguese Portrait Prize. She lives and works in Scotland Island, which is in northern Sydney, but feels a million miles away from the city. We talked about her approach to painting, especially about taking risks in creating art, which I found really interesting. She also shares her knowledge about her techniques and um, about her views on teaching. She's the most inspirational teacher I've ever met. All the works we talk about are on the website, talkingwithpainters.com. We're in this absolutely gorgeous place called Scotland Island at the moment, which is, how far is it from the centre of Sydney? In a car, uh, it's about an hour's drive. It's a neat hour's drive from Sydney to here. But um, psychologically, it's very far. Yeah, because you can't get here. You have to get a ferry. It's that yeah. band of water that psychologically makes it a very different place. And, and I think because... What's interesting with an island, you picture an island in your mind as fundamentally round and surrounded by water. And what I find in paintings, if you put a round shape in, your eye goes straight to that round shape and it's as though your eye, once it's in that round shape, cannot get out. It holds you in. It's it's a, a magnet, a visual magnet. And it's the same on the island, not that I can't get out, it's the psychological thing is crossing over that water onto the island you're entering into a different space and so Mm. even when I'm on the island I feel really very far from what we all call the mainland. You grew up in Sydney didn't you? Yeah I'm I'm a Sydney girl and I've I've lived close to the city all my adult life and um, and yet the pull of the gum trees was too strong. And Um, did you you spend any holidays in in that sort of environment when you were a kid? Well when I was a child, my parents used to sail uh, each Saturday on pit water. Oh, yeah. And so we were either left on a wharf with a, a handreel catching leather jackets or <laughs> my siblings and I, we were dropped off at the base of Scotland Island and given an oyster knife. And they'd go, bye, see you in two hours. <laughs> and so left my, my brother was about six, so it was six, six eight, ten, twelve-year-olds. Or even younger than that, actually. Yes, oh. I think even younger than that. Left with our oyster knives. And they'd come back and we'd be full as ticks. We'd eaten oysters all day and so thirsty because there's no natural water source on the island. But So um, you had a very free childhood? Yeah. My mother was a country girl and so she'd say, here's an apple, don't come back till lunch. That was um, her um, sort of benign neglect, Yeah. Um, which I think is really, really good for a child because you... You have a sense of space. So when you were growing up, uh, did your, uh, you had three siblings. Yes. And, and who, were there any artistic sort of people in your family? Um, my mum was an artist. She went oh, to okay. Julian Ashton's in the 40s. So was she, did you see her drawing and painting Yes, she painted every day. Oh, uh, yeah. But she was 
said there's only room for one artist per household, so so I wasn't encouraged in that direction. Really? Yeah, she defended her fiefdom of paint um, and it was only pretty much at the time of her death that that um, she said, you you can have my paints. So... So you were already an established artist when she No. Was? Oh. No, I'd just started painting and it, it was strange because I, I, I had trained as, a, as a, a designer of clothing, of shoes, of all sorts of things. Uh, she believed that's, that way I could um, feed myself, which was probably very wise. Mm. Um, a lot of young artists are driving a lot of cabs and waiting on a lot of tables and so she thought it was necessary I'd feed myself. I went from from being a, a student to running this this business. And oh. I, you know, I was selling to shops all over the joint. You know, what was that? Was that fashion like clothes? Yes, I was designing designing and manufacturing clothing, a full fashion range. I had three employees and three phone lines, and um, I was sharing a house with four flatmates and a studio and a shop. And a leased vehicle, right. all on my savings. It was so quite crazy. young. Were you in your 20s? Yeah, from the age of 20 when I bought a $30 sewing machine from a porn shop. <laughs> porn, as in porn, yeah. not porn, I mean shop. <laughs> and um, started in, a, in the walk-in cupboard of the house I shared with three, three friends. Um, and then cut these clothing out and sewed them up and walked up the road carrying them and walked into a good-looking boutique. And so I did that for two weeks and then I had to get it manufactured and found a, what's called a cutter, a maker-upper, a presser. And um, well, you must have had just blind sort of uh, yes. courage. Yeah. I just didn't have – my risk gauge was, was turned off. <laughs> I had <laughs> nothing to you lose. Didn't think, yeah, you didn't think and, oh, I could fail or and if I did fail it didn't matter. Yeah, and, and it was nobody's money but mine and, mm. I'd, you know, the, the big investment was a $30 machine in the flat house that I'm already sharing and paying the rent for. Um, and then I went and bought 10 metres of one fabric, 10 metres of another and 10 metres of another. So for a grand investment of $200, I was in business. <laughs> Little did I know. So 10 years later, I staggered out of it because it was exhausting. But I was designing shoes and I, I, what I was doing was getting the flat leather of the shoe before it was formed into a shoe and I was painting on those and I was doing paintings, <laughs> painting after Monet, painting after Paul Clay, painting after this on these shoes. And, um, and so one what were you painting with, acrylics or...? No, special leather paints onto the leather and then it was sealed and then it was formed into a shoe. So the, the customer got a painting with their shoe? Yeah. That's amazing. The shop owner then said, look... I want to display these, but can you please paint the concept of the shoe before it was a shoe? And I said, what, as a painting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and for them it just seemed easy. And I thought, oh, goodness gracious, okay, we'll give this a go. And then she displayed them all and um, people said, love the shoes, but why wear a painting into the dirt? So ended up buying all the paintings to her horror. And Was that the first paintings you'd ever done? As an adult, yes. I, all the way through, I'd gone to life drawing. I'd even at at, at um, when I went to East Sydney Tech, which was national, which is now National Art School, the um, the head of the art, uh, design section kept saying, "You shouldn't be here. You should be over in the that other building." And that other building was where the, the art students were, because I uh, kept doing absurd things um, with fabric and. Uh, 
Ah. Yeah. What, um, like what sort of things? Do you remember? Oh, we. Uh, I'd always done quite absurd things. I found, I found this old um, sheepskin, and I ended up cutting all the wool off it, the greasy wool, which mm. smelt very sheepy. Yeah. And then I stitched it in rows on on a hessian bag I found, and then I got normal old hemp string and plaited the ribbons, uh, ties at the front of it. And it looked, I thought it looked just great, but the only problem when I wore it is that dogs would bark at me and chase me down the street. Because <laughs> um, it was very natural, one could say. Yeah. And so, when, whereas other people are bringing in their nice bright blue satin, you know, tucked bodices, and here was this smelly sheep in the room. Um, he kept saying, You shouldn't be here, you should be over at the art school. Yeah. And or did you... I'd get the fabric and I'd actually paint onto the fabric throw paint on it and really do lovely sort of Pollock expression all over the paint and then I'd, you know, pleat that up into a skirt. So he's mm. just saying, you shouldn't be here. And did you feel that you shouldn't be there? Or I was having you... fun. It's yeah. all it's all ideas-based. It's, it, it's starting with nothing, getting an idea and creating something. And that's whether it's painting, drawing, ceramics, whatever. It's that, it's that beauty of of following through an idea and realising it. Mm. Um, and now where would that idea come from? Have you ever thought about that? From the sheer materials. So the, 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 the beauty of the, uh, and the softness of the wool and ha- how its texture married with the, with the um, hessian mm. and then just the delight of putting bands upon bands of it together. I do clothing out of sheer plastic and then I'd get sticky contact plastic and I'd stick on it lovely, you know, triangles and beautiful designs and make an abstract image onto this clear plastic and then make a jacket out of that. And um, So think of a Mondrian raincoat or, mm. yeah. And that is, was that something that just na- you naturally did? Yes. You, you were never taught that? It was something? No. Did you find you did that from when you were very young? Yes, so it's a little bit, here's your apple, don't come back till lunch. So you have to learn to, to keep yourself busy. Mm. And so I'm, I'm very good at keeping myself busy. Well, I can see in the house, I mean, we've just looked around your fantastic home here in Scotland Island and you've been very busy here because you've yeah. basically just by hand done so many, basic, like major renovations, yeah. put in doors, in walls. Take Those windows them into... Yeah, it's just so obviously you live, you, you really do live a creative life and it's not just in painting. And I'm a terrible shopper, so I don't like going shopping. And so to avoid shopping, you make it yourself. <laughs> I, I'm a hunter-gatherer throwback. Yeah, I, I didn't get the gene that says get in your car, drive to the shops, buy pretty things and come home. I, that completely bypassed me. I, I, I have to sort of go out and hunt it with my... You know, mental spear until I, I come up with something that, 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 that makes do yeah, and then get tremendous satisfaction from it. So, Well, is it also that you you don't want that ready-made thing? I don't want that ready-made thing. I don't want the, the blandness of good taste. Mm. You know, good, good, good taste, like good manners. Uh, good manners are designed not to uh, intrude on people. We interfere, ruffle people's feathers and good taste... Um, I, I'm all pro good design, but often good taste, good design that has then gone through the filter of mass production turns into something that that offends fewest people. Mm. And so it, 
it can be very elegant, but what does it say? What does it give you? And um, yeah, there's no there's no s history in it. And so after, how did you find art in high school? Did you do art in high school? I, I changed schools when I was um, 12, 13 and their art syllabus was full. So they said, all right, you can go and do sewing. I went, I don't want to sew, I want to do paint. <laughs> nope, doing sewing. And so that was another thing that, you know, predirected my life towards being a dress designer because oh. I could then make stuff. Um, and it just happened to be with a machine and fabric. Mm. So, and do you think it was it was instilled in you from that age where, by yeah. doing it at school? Yeah. yeah, because I was good at it, and and life tends to say, all right, you're good at that, then go and do it. Mm. Uh, and the older you get, the more you get stuck in that thing. I'm good at that. Well, I should keep doing that. And you see a lot of artists who get good at something. And they continue to do that, which is rewarded in this society because people like to see at each exhibition a little bit more of the same because it's comforting. Mm. And they get to... Uh, one artist I spoke with, they said, find out what you're good at and what sells and keep doing it. And um, I once had a gallerist say to me the night of an exhibition, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, oh, nothing, hoping he'd say go and... Go and, go and read a book for four weeks. He, he said, well, tomorrow go back in the studio and do 15 more of the same. Oh. And could I ever do anything like that again? No, because the minute I started to paint like that, I felt like I was producing a product. Lloyd Rees said he only knows that a painting has a, any chance of being good is when he's prepared to ruin it. It's at that moment that you are risking ruining it that it might just turn out to be. What do you mean by that? What do you mean risking ruining it? What well, he would throw, he would throw um, paint at it. He'd dip his brush into the turps and go flick. Yeah. And it would just go dribble, dribble, dribble down. You look at his work, people think dribbles are, are contemporary. No, the dragging the layers of paint down. Yeah. And um, when I read he was doing that, I thought, oh, gee, if that's good enough for Lloyd, that's good enough for me. So this painting I'd been working on in layers of oil paint for a couple of weeks, I thought, that's what it needs, the terps. So I got the terps and I flinging the terps, oh, that looks better, flinging the terps, that, oh, that looks great, more terps, flinging the terps. And then the phone rang and I went and answered the phone, I came back and all the painting had gone from the painting onto the floor. <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, um, so is that what you mean by risk? It's the risk. You risk to ruin it. Yes, and so, and so yeah. by the risk, it's like you have a knock at the door. Well, rather than looking through the little hole to see who's there, you open the door and you risk the surprise of a welcome guest or an unwelcome guest. And and if you've always got control of whether you open that door or not, mm. or not, you don't allow creativity to come in. And so Turner with his dirty hands and fingernail, he'd drag through the paint. Reese said he used to paint with the heel of his thumb he would drag his hand through it and so that it's, that is is a rather blunt tool mm, isn't it mm. and so what you've it's got doing you've got less control and mm. sometimes you can force sometimes you have to force it um by those risks mm. because 
you might be sitting peacefully reading a book, knock your tea over and suddenly you're moving, you're grabbing this, you're doing that, your whole dynamic shifts. Same within a painting, you suddenly put a colour on that surprises you, knocks that blandness of good taste and control on its, on its nose. Then you react yep. and that reaction might be the very essence of what takes that painting from a good, solid, considered work to something with a, a degree of magic that's palpable mm. to the eye. I, I saw on YouTube um, uh, that video of you working on, on one of your paintings, huh. Icarus, and that was very interesting because it is, it is what you're talking about now where you yeah. risk by you at times obliterating everything Shocking. That, that appeared before. Shocking. Now, sometimes this risk thing can become a bit problematic. So, so I was being very, very tough on myself. and But also at the same time, because I was very shoddily taking photographs, it jumps all over the place, I thought, I'm going to record these changes. And somehow by having the little memory of the painting each time within a, a camera meant that it was locked into a saved space. So I wasn't really losing it. Somewhere in my mind said, oh, I've still got it. Mm. But, and on the other hand, it dared me to keep going. It was like a bad influence friend that kept saying, I dare you more, I dare you more, yes. further, go deeper, go deeper, go deeper. And so just by the very action of, 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 of me taking a photograph, kept encouraging me to just, Come on, risk again, risk again, risk again, and um, so so that I, so that it, it took away that concern that you were losing the painting by painting over. Yes, it. although often it hurts. Mm. I can actually, ow, mm. ouch, ouch, <laughs> um, and because sometimes you do that risk, and like every risk, you've probably gone back six steps when yeah. you when you wanted to go forward and so in that little film it shows at times that I have undone I have destroyed a nearly good painting just so close to being a good painting so do you remember what your first show was of like what sort of paintings you had in that show oh very much so it was there were Figurative work, as in they had figures in them, mm. and they uh, are very different from my work now. Mm. Um, they were much clearer. You could look at it, see it, and understand it. And mm. I think this is what a lot of young artists do. They they want their paintings to explain exactly what they mm. what you're thinking. Mm. Mm. Um, and the longer I paint, the more I realise that the viewer doesn't get pleasure, uh, nearly as much pleasure of looking at a painting that has everything explained for them than a painting that suggests something. Mm. And then you, you, the viewer, actually finds the feelings, the meaning, mm. uh, the sense of it. Uh, I think it's a, a much more of an emotional relationship if you're not worrying about explaining every little thing mm. in, in the painting. So that would be the major change. The gesture is the same. The gesture. The, they say um, there's a, a well-known Australian abstract artist, one of our best of Australia, Anne Thompson, and she, she said to me, some artists paint with the wrist, some artists paint with their elbow, and other artists paint with the shoulder. Mm. 
And this gestural thing that I've got is very much I'm a shoulder painter. So yes. you've got this the movement. Very, very few of my paintings are visually still. There is still the, the sense of movement and gesture. Yeah, I think feeling is more important than, than your subject. Mm. Uh, because especially you can see 10 different artists paint a still life and you've got 10 very, very different paintings. It's, it shouldn't be the subject that controls the, the painting. So, so or, or you think of Turner, House of Parliament, Burning House of Parliament, you get 10 people to do Burning House of Parliament and half would look like architectural drawings. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. So, so it's not your subject, it's the power of the feeling that you can create. We've got, we've got ever since cameras have been in existence, artists have had to grapple with the thing that we're not just showing the subject and, of course, abstraction. Mm. Abstraction through the subject away. What does it leave? It needs a good compositional space, a good whack of colour or otherwise fascinating textures, but the main thing is is you described abstract art, it felt like that. It had an emotion about it. Yeah. yeah. It felt angry. It felt this. It made me feel peaceful. Yeah. Uh, and so and I think an artist or like a, 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 mus- a, a composer, a musician, it's, it's, it's how it felt. Mm. It's like the, the rather than how your dinner looks, it's how it smelt and how it tastes. So an artist's role is... is, is, is is yet, I think, to communicate a feeling. Mm. Well, the last few exhibitions that you've had have mm. been very, uh, have really communicated a feeling, I mm. think. Um, a lot of um, landscape paintings, mm. and I notice a, a strong emphasis on the sky and the light. Yeah, and uh, the light. The sky. I like light. I, I, I like I like the sense of light, and and I think it it it, it, it what it's what excites you as an artist, mm. and I really love that whack of light. And with the landscapes, it's not as if I drive to Woi Woi, paint Woi Woi, come home. I, I I want to paint a sense of a landscape. So mm. again, it goes back to the the kid that was sent out with an apple, you know, off you go. Um, mm. And a lot of that time was at my grandparents' property, and and wild rough hills of of yes and we were sent out and one time in in soft drizzly windy day i put on my uncle huge uncle's uh, raincoat windsheeter and up the hill my elder siblings tolerated me dragging behind them and we got right to the top of the hill and we'd been in the lee side of the hill and got to the top of the hill and the wind on the other side raced up the hill. And with that, I opened my arms up and held onto the tails of the windsheeter and this huge windsheeter, like a spinnaker, picked up the wind and, and you know, lifted my arms up like a bird. And I said to my, my elder brother and sister, look, I'm flying as I leant into the wind. Yeah. And so this sense of wind, of landscape, of freedom, of, of, of flight... Yeah. I think has pervaded my work. I think it's mm. all the way through that sense of space. Um, I mm. love to be up on high looking across and out. Um, the thing is to, for an artist, is to create something that reminds people of how nature felt that day, how nature smelt that day. So will you um, draw on a memory of a place? Yes, on a sense, on a sense. And so sometimes on my canvas I can just put down a whole lot of abstract shapes 
and then I put all the beautiful colors out and then I just start gently painting into it and getting the feeling of the movement of those lines and then I stand back and then I then from those lovely patches of color which if I was satisfied as an pure abstract artist I might just leave it like that mm. but that's when I then come in with throwing Madame Terps and mushing it up and moving it around and bringing in balls of light and to make light shine patches of darkness and would you uh are you do you use glazing as a method is, is that what a you lot of glazing do? so within so Terps is a basic way of saying sometimes within that terps I mix in a medium, an oil painting medium um, called medium number three or medium number four. Mm -hmm. I'll mix that in and make up this lovely, lovely, um, quite liquid, sort of like thin, thin cream, normal cream. Yep consistency and that's as the painting matures because the thicker the more mature the painting is the thicker your surface can become mm -hmm. and so I might start off with just let's say it's called retouch varnish and that's that's um terps and damar mixed together mm -hmm. and the gum terps takes paint away and spreads it whereas the medium it also gives a certain body to the paint and a sheen Terps mm. will just make it all look chalky and empty mm. after a while. So, if, if, so with that Damar varnish, in you start building up a, um, a, a lovely um, patina. I'll yep. also then, after that stage, not that it's very formal staging, but then I'll come along with impasto paint again, thick paint, and then marry into that paint layers of um, um, wax medium. Mm. And again, that gives beautiful body to paint, a certain transparency mm. and that lovely soft patina of, of, um, of beeswax. And do you have to wait until the, no the layers, layers are dry? Uh, when, when you think of um, Renoir, if he had to leave his painting for two days and it had dried, he would re-wet it. He'd splash his terps onto it to, to break down the surface of the oil paint. So mm. the, the technique of painting wet on wet, you actually want your paint to be influenced by the paint that it's under. So this, a lot of, a lot of students have said to me, oh, I don't like working in oils because you have to wait till it dries all the time. And I said, no. And again, they're scared because they're scared to mush it up, dirty well, it up. There, well, that's it. Isn't there a problem with your colours muddying? If you do that? Well, if you... All right, so let's say you want to paint a lovely bright red patch on top of a, um, a, dark, a dark green. Yes, it's going to shift it, but it's the way you paint it on as well. So if you um, are heavily whack your paint onto the surface, mm. it is going to pick up and move the paint under it. Mm. If you tenderly place the paint on it, it's like putting soft cheese onto a fine wafer biscuit. You can put that cheese on without that bicky breaking. Well, look, you've mentioned your students a few times yep. and I wanted to talk about that mm. because you're, um, I mean, that's how I met you. Yes. It's <laughs> through art class. I remember I heard about you and heard that there was a waiting list for your class. Mm -hmm. So I was very lucky to get in. And I know that you also... Um, you do workshops at the Art Gallery of New South Wales yes. and they sell out pretty quickly too. Yes. And I think that's because you are such a dynamic and, and inspiring teacher and I've really enjoyed um, being in your class. What do you, how do you uh, feel about teaching? Uh, a lot of my teaching is in sheer defiance to the way I was taught when I was at, at art school. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I had one or two good teachers, but a number of the teachers I felt they were jealous of their knowledge. They almost didn't want me to learn so quickly. That stuff that had taken them years to learn, they thought, no way am I just going to hand it over on a silver platter. Mm. And, um, and... Yeah, I've come across people like that too. Yeah, yeah this holding yeah. back and you think, well, why have you got a teaching job if you're not prepared? Yeah. And, look, it takes up a... It, you do use a great deal of energy. The better you teach, the more energy you use up. Mm. And there's some really professional teachers who are clever in, in being able to control the amount of energy they pour out because otherwise the next day... You're worn out and how can you paint? Mm, mm. You've actually given out all your creative energy and so mm. you've exhaled it all. So then you have to inhale again to be ready to exhale for your own creative source. I think you've got to, before you learn to paint, you, it, you've got to learn to see paint. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so a lot of my teaching is about, people would have heard me saying, Look at this. Now look closely at it. Look closely at it. See, and we're looking at other artists' work. We say, yeah, look which... at that colour. Look at the colour under that colour. And so you're actually looking at the paint. Mm. Yeah, I think that was one of the great things you used to do, mm. and you probably still do, is is spend time at the beginning of the class going through, you know, artists' works. Mm. And we, you know, examined all these famous artists' paintings. And it, that was extremely inspiring and it sort of got you used to looking, at, constantly looking at work, mm. and and growing as an artist through in that way. Yeah, because their masters were got the greatest painters that the world has deemed the greatest painters. Mm. There's been ones lost along the way, gone out of fashion, which might come back in again. Um, but they're all just sitting, waiting for us to look at them. Yeah, it's it's not like a book that you have to then. Um, get um, to read the whole story to understand the author. The painting is sitting in front of you, saying, "Look at me." Yeah. And and I think if <laughs> I think it, it, it's like being in the room with with a, a, a genius and not asking them about what they think. And mm. I, I think there is a deep. A lot of people have got this this idea that they've got to treasure their originality as that's this precious jewel that's going to be um, compromised by mm. learning about other artists' work. Mm. And it's a complete nonsense because what other artists' work does for you, it, the other artists' work is giving you a, a greater vocab. Yeah, that's right. To be able to then say what you want to say, all the better. You've got um, an exhibition coming up next year in the Botanic Gardens. Yes, deadlines. I quite like a deadline. I think it's... I'm an adre adrenaline junkie, so... Well, it gives you a, that, that impetus, doesn't it, to keep, to, to keep working towards something. I think it's important and, too. And not overpaint. Yeah. I think yeah. every artist needs someone with a very good eye to run into the studio, grab it and take it away again. Most of the great art... We have today is thanks to, to art dealers who ran into people's studio, grabbed it, <laughs> because so much good work has been overpainted. Well, thank you very much for having me at your beautiful home here at Scotland <laughs> Island. My pleasure. And good luck with your show next year. Thank you, Maria. 
it was great to catch up with Juliet again. I've posted the video I mentioned on Facebook and Instagram where you'll get a look at the place she calls home which is filled with her artwork and even furniture that she's made herself. And also if you're not listening to this as a podcast you might be just listening to it from the website or you might just not get what a podcast is. Just um, Google how to listen to a podcast or better still get a kid to show you how to download it onto your phone or um, other mobile device. I guarantee there will be other shows that you're going to be interested in from the thousands of podcast shows out there um, which range from politics to comedy to any subject you can think of. Anyway, looking forward to you joining me for the next episode of Talking With Painters.